I rescind my statement. That's no fun. Okay, then leave it. It's not recorded, so it doesn't really matter. We'll just deny it ever happened. You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hey guys, so the Dots, Lines, and Destinations guys uh, sort of let me handle the controls here for a little bit, which um, may be dangerous, but um, you are listening to the Miles to Go podcast, and we're doing a little bit of a crossover episode this week. I hope today's show is going to be a fun one. We're absolutely going to go off the rails. Um, this is an idea I've been trying to put together for a while, but schedules and any number of headaches uh, really got in the way. You know, I, I was writing up a script before we got started, and... <laughs> I put the word inspiration in, which um, which which will be um, a head scratcher for all the other guests of the show today. Um, but let it go, let it go their heads. You know, the crew I, I have on my show this week, and we're doing this dots, lines, destinations crossover. These three guys were actually the yes inspiration for me to start my own podcast. Uh, back then, when I started listening to you guys, it was actually four co-hosts. Um, nowadays, it's just three: uh, Fosma Mood, Seth Miller, and Stephen C. Graves from Dot Lines and Destinations um, are the the crew of three now hey guys uh welcome to miles to go thanks yeah thanks for having us and for my listeners if you're not familiar with dot signs and destinations it is a travel podcast that frequently goes off the rails uh, but while at the same time digging deep into the travel industry um i i won't even try to summarize how many millions of miles these three guys have flown or how much free booze has been consumed in the process <laughs> but complimentary um, it was never free <laughs> <laughs> inclusive inclusive there you go so, um, so before we get too deep into it, um, uh, and, you know, I understand some of your listeners have probably been here since the beginning, but since I wasn't even here in, in the beginning of Dots Lines, do you guys want to just summarize for my listeners sort of like how the show got started, including it wasn't always called Dots Lines and Destinations? Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can do that. So, uh, I guess we started, what, nine years ago? Um, we, Foz was on a previous podcast even before this one called Upgrade. Uh, and we had the idea of when that podcast ended uh, of doing a show and we called it points order, uh, because we were focusing on points, even though we never really hoarded points or maybe I'm the only one that hoarded points. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and so it was supposed uh, to be ironical. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, so we started talking more along the travel lines. Um, and it, it, it veers into aviation mostly, though I think there's, travel stuff that we're interested in that we talk about. Yeah. I, I, I can tell you that we actually rebranded a DLD almost exactly seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's crazy to think about really. Yeah. Because it was, we did it on our, uh, Island hopper adventure, which was the MH370 day, which was seven years ago earlier this month. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I remember when it changed. Episode. I remember when it changed over. Um, but boy, gosh, I mean, I know I'm old, but seven years. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just doing the math in my head on how old I was when we started. And I'm like, that, that was seven years ago, but I still remember like it was yesterday. <laughs> well, and and in, in, in a testimony to how inspirational you guys were, it took me over four years of listening to your show to start my own. <laughs> It took you four years to realize, man, this is this this has gone off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someone needs to step in and try something a little better controlled than these guys. Yeah. <laughs> I can do better. <laughs> oh man! All right. So as I said earlier, uh, you know we're going to follow the dots lines format um, as opposed to my standard miles to go show. So for my listeners, if you enjoy this week's episode, that means you should definitely hit the subscribe button on the dots lines show. And don't worry, I will drop a link into the show notes for that. And with that. Uh, I'm officially out of script, so I'm going to turn the steering wheel over to the gang for a bit. Um, and we've got a bunch of a bunch of geeky stuff to cover. Can, uh, can we throw a preemptive apology to those of your listeners that suffer through this and are like, "What the hell just happened?" <laughs> 
Well, they've suffered through you before, but they've never suffered through a whole dot flying <laughs> destination. So it accumulates with the magnitude, Ed. It gets way worse with all of yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I probably should have, like, I probably should have had you back on before this, just so there was to warm it sort up. of a build up to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just remember, Stevens the adult. Sometimes <laughs> we're grading on a curve, right? Yes. Of course. <laughs> um, so you know, when we're talking about a travel show and we're talking about traveling the world and experiencing everything that the world has to offer. There really is no better place to start than Cancun, right? <laughs> Fly me to Cancun. <laughs> Sorry, there was a fun little, there was a whole bit of like, fly me to the moon, fly me to Cancun bit when uh, Cruz made his trip. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, we're not off the rails at all. <laughs> Seth is singing, so that's a good sign. Um, it's a great sign. Yeah, so Seth, Seth, this was your, uh, this was your first contribution to the show. And I hadn't heard about this, but apparently, um, the, the state of Quintana Roo, which covers Cancun, um, Playa del Carmen, Tulum, um, will now charge you an extra 11 bucks a pop, um, as a, uh, departure tax, huh? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, tourism numbers are up, or strong, and it's hard to say if, that they're necessarily up, but it's definitely one of the strongest uh, American markets right now for international travel, or really any leisure travel, so why not try to cash in on that 10 11 bucks a head? Yeah, and I mean, I, I don't know, I mean, I, these sorts of things... I, 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 I get it. There's so many Americans that are going to, to Cancun and to Mexico in general right now, but... I mean, this just seems like a very short-sighted way of thinking, in my opinion. I mean, this is not a fee that you see everybody charging in the Mex- Mexico uh, and the Caribbean. So um, is it small enough that people just won't care? I, I would start with a slightly challenging your it's not something that we see everybody doing um, premise there. There's a lot of markets that are like, hey, tourists are easy to charge money to. They don't vote here. We may as well take their cash. Sure, but then why not just increase the hotel tax? Like that's, I mean, you you got to create a website and you got to charge people. Like there's like all kinds of stuff that you have to do if you're going to do this, as opposed to just saying, well, sure, let's just charge another, you know, couple hundred pesos a day on hotel rates. Yeah, and I honestly, I probably would have uh, included it in the airport departure tax, although I'm not sure they could do it just for certain airports as easily. Um, that would be another sort of less less overhead way to do the charges, um, but. Yeah, so they're it's not, they're, hard. They're not going to do it based on the ticket. Like they're not. They're not. It's not a percentage. It's a flat fee. And and they're not doing it. They're not doing it as part of the ticket. Like like literally charging it as an add on to the ticket price. No, it's a separate transaction you have to do. Oh, that's and, a pain. That's yeah. A pain. So you, you, in other words, you have to like present a ticket at the airport. A ticket, but you have to Stop. present a receipt at the airport yeah. that you've that you've paid online. And if you don't have that, then you have to buy. You have to buy it at the airport. So it's like what Panama used to do. Yeah. Go down there. Yeah, I mean, lots of places used to do it in person. I think we did that in Palau when we visited 15, 16 years ago for our honeymoon. So, um, or it was right after they changed it. It was something like that. Yeah, but Ecuador, Ecuador did it for a while too. So. Yeah. It's on the one hand, you know, the, the government feels completely in control of the money. And especially if you do it, um, without the, you know, if the government fully controls it and isn't contracting for anyone, then it's much easier to sort of move the money directly into whatever fund that they want to skim from. Um, <laughs> but no, it's it's one of many places, especially in the Caribbean, that is riding that tourism uh, cash cow, right? I mean, there's there's an interesting debate between, as Ed, as you said, sort of why don't you just increase the you know the room tax or some other number a little bit more or just trust that when, you know, if you make it a little cheaper to be here, people will spend more money when they're on the ground. Uh, that That's a tough one because, you know, maybe a 60 or $70 departure tax, which is, which is not uncommon in some of the Caribbean islands, um, is too far, but, you know, $10 is okay. I, I'm not sure what the right number is there. Like, can you guarantee an extra $10 in, 
you know, tequila spending from every tourist that visits. <laughs> but that wouldn't be money straight into the government coffers, right? That's a drawback to that. Well, well right, because so it's got to be $100 per person in spending to get to 10 if it's a, right, like whatever the tax rate is. So there's some interesting challenges there. I don't know. I But I, overall, I, I tend to think there is probably a sweet spot somewhere in the middle where you're not raising the price so much that people are going to not show up. And also, truly, by making it a separate transaction, you shield it from – the airlines don't get as pissy with you about making their prices look higher. The hotels don't get as pissy with you about making the, their prices look higher. You just have that confused passenger at the airport. It's like, what do you mean I have to pay to leave? Well, and I get that when the fee is like 60 or 70 bucks. But, I mean, you're talking the fee is like $11 when you convert it from pesos. Yeah. So, you know, if the average stay is, you know, call it four nights – it's like two bucks a night at your hotel, two fifty. I mean, this isn't this isn't a this isn't a bottom line mover at those sorts of numbers. So. No, but they also are charging it per person, so not per room. Yeah, no, all right, fair point. So, so maybe it's ten bucks yeah, a room yeah, right. instead. Yeah, it's still not it's still not significant to create all the infrastructure they're creating. I mean, there's going to be a cost to all of that, but <clears throat> I don't know. It just seems like an inefficient way. But yeah. someone's and, cousin gets work by building the infrastructure. It's true. Many cousins. Yeah, I, I'm just going to say, you know, there is an airline that flies uh, between Cancun and. Uh, uh, Cozumel, and you can fly to Cozumel to most places. Not is Cozumel not also in Quintana Roo? No, it is Quintana Roo. Yeah, good call. Dang it! Thought I was maybe so maybe take the domestic flight up to Tijuana, walk across the border, and then fly up from San Diego. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> to save ten dollars a person. <laughs> you can, you can walk over, yeah, you can walk over. Especially, the bridge. especially to be fair, that bridge yeah. the, the fee to use the bridge is more than ten dollars. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. So speaking of speaking of bridges, we almost had a bridge to Europe, but um, but Iceland is open for business uh, for U.S. Uh, residents, but only as far as Iceland. You can't can't use it as a as a transit point. Still, I, I think it's um, and Stephen, I think you were the one that, that uh, tagged the story. I think it's um, interesting, premature, um, but I mean, a little surprising. Yeah, I think you know I was I was talking with the guys about this, and someone had just said this is already it's already open. Like they're it is yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, one of the bloggers that we know, Andy from Andy's Travels Blog, is already there taking pictures of the volcanic eruption. Yeah, which I, I mean it's fascinating because like they, they said it wasn't going to happen till the twenty sixth, I believe, of this of this month. Um, so I guess they're just like eh, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I, to me, it raises some interesting questions about one, what's it take to get in? I think Andy posted, you know, he just used his quarantine card, which right. doesn't match up with vaccine card. Website says vaccine card. Uh, uh, which doesn't match up with what the government website says. The government website says you basically need the WHO yellow card uh, from a doctor. Um, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. Um, and I wonder how quickly it's going to become inundated. It's really hard to get there right now from the United States. Yes. Yeah. No one's flying nonstop from the U.S. Um, and Iceland Air isn't starting up flights from most of their West Coast or Central U.S. destinations until the summer. So everything's via Europe. So I don't know how Andy got there. But uh, – uh, I would be fascinated. I'm going to have to go read his blog now. Yeah, it's, yeah uh, oh, I didn't look that up either. Yeah, I wonder how he did get there. Yeah, I mean, well, don't forget the Wizz Air flight landed as that volcano was erupting. So, you know, there's definitely options. <laughs> well, that's the other <laughs> thing, too. Now now there's a volcano, and it's, uh, you know, causing some headaches for flights departing and arriving. <laughs> yeah, I, and it looked, I mean, you know, I I'd heard that there was an eruption, and then I saw some of the pictures. And I wouldn't say it's, like, massive Mount Etna style just yet, but it seems pretty sizable. I, I do wonder if we're going to have some of the issues that we had so many years ago with, uh, I mean, obviously that's a, a, a fairly big chunk of the airspace to get from the U.S. to Europe. I guess given there's so few flights right now, maybe it's not as big an issue to, to reroute folks. Yeah, I was I was secretly hoping you were going to try to pronounce that old volcano uh, on the show. No, 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 no. no. Remember, this is a scripted show. Oh, wait, maybe it's not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, for right now, it seems like it's a pretty tame volcano. And so yeah. there, I know there's been some 
you know, ash cloud kind of reroutes around that southern parts of Iceland because it's really close to Reykjavik is where the, the volcano is. And so I know there's been some reroutes around that, but um, I haven't seen anything major stopping traffic going to Europe, so which is which is good. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Would you guys go to Iceland during all this um, with it, with the pandemic not really being over yet? Would you, would you make the, the trip? I mean, part of the compelling or, you know, one of the factors about it that makes it compelling is they are limiting it only to uh, vaccinated or you spend the time in quarantine like, you know, you always have and always is relative. But so or proof of or proof of previous infection. Uh, yes, because then you're also considered healthy again. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I think we're, we're back to, from my perspective, the same point that I was every time we talked about this travel, which is I don't really like the idea of traveling right now until I know that more people are vaccinated mm. and being yeah. a, a potential burden on the system, even though I know I am, like, are all the flight attendants or many of the flight attendants have that option yet? No. Do the hotel workers or whatever? Maybe in Iceland that stuff is better, but it's hard for me to say. Yeah. So. So let's talk a little bit about about where flights are going for the moment and schedules because you know it was one of the topics I wanted to check in on when we were going to do an episode together and I don't want to I don't want to taint the discussion and I, I know I won't with with you guys because you'll tell me if if you think I'm wrong every single time I'm wrong um, but you know I was looking at some you're wrong Ed thank you thank you couldn't have seen that one coming I kind of remember not to pitch kind of walked right into it I'm yeah just... yeah yeah <laughs> pitch softball somebody's gonna hit it out of the park on this show. Um, so Cranky Flyer have, has been doing these airport uh, these updates on a weekly basis of, of all the various airlines and, and how they're cutting up frequencies and dumping capacity. And, you know, the last couple updates for April, May, June um, were surprising to me because, I mean, like largely we believe that business travel hasn't really returned in any meaningful way. But it seems like the airlines are anywhere in like the 20 to 30 percent uh, capacity cuts from their 2019 numbers. And I don't know. It just it doesn't feel like we're at. 70% of the 2019 numbers yet. Am I am I off base here? Doesn't feel that way in terms of like the number of seats flying or where the, the planes demand. are going or the, 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 like I know there's I know there's leisure demand but essentially if 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 the airlines can fly 70% of their capacity reasonably full that means that only 30% of the people that traveled in April of 19 were business travelers or there's that much more leisure travel today. I mean I so I think I think there's I think there's some uh, qualifications we need to make, right? So jets are flying, so capacity is there. Doesn't mean demand's there. I think you know if you look like if you look tonight, right? Like KLM's flying a bunch of destinations out of the United States to Amsterdam. Guaranteed, those flights aren't full or half full. That's fair, but at the same time, I mean the TSA screening numbers are running around sixty percent right now. True. Spring break is huge. Spring break. It's all. Yep. There's been some interesting patterns around holidays, um, and I'll count spring break as a holiday, even though that's stupid. Um, and we're going into Easter, right? Easter is this coming weekend. The following weekend. Yeah. April okay. Sorry. Secondish. It's always one of the weekends of Passover, and I never know which. Sorry. Um, Fourth. Okay. So it's the second weekend of Passover this year. But yeah, like y- you're getting close to Easter, and you've got spring break travel, and there are some number of people now who are vaccinated, and there's plenty mm-hmm. of people that are like, I stayed home all winter. F this. I'm going out there. Um, and or I didn't stay home all winter, and I still like traveling, and so I'm going to keep doing me. Like there, there's all those things. But yeah, you're, you're looking at 60, 70% demand or seats. Uh, 60, 70% of uh, two years ago now numbers of March 2019 is what I've been comparing. Um, and, and thanks to the TSA, you can't do it correctly, but whatever. <laughs> well, in March, I kind of get, but like when you get like April and May to me was always one of those periods of the year. I mean, certainly not the first week of April because you still have some spring break hangover, but before you get to Memorial Day, that, that always struck me as 
that's really a business travel sort of season. That's not really like people aren't you know, targeting the first week of May. Well, all right, maybe Cinco de Mayo, but they're not. That's not <laughs> typically the, like, hey, this is this is where all the leisure travel goes. Like that strikes me as one of those times where you know that's going to have a higher slant of of business travelers. Yeah, and and then you got you know airlines like Alaska saying, hey, we're going to be at you know eighty percent of our May two thousand nineteen numbers. And it's, wow, that's that seems like a lot. And maybe you know maybe well, some airlines have downgaged, but I think Alaska is a good example of they don't have a lot of um you know gap in seats per plane if you will and um, the numbers usually when they're talking about that is available seats or available seat miles right so it's not um really it, it's not you, you can say they're downgaging or whatever but if they say they're running at 80% capacity it's not that they took 20% of the planes out it's they took 20% of the seat miles out so it really is very close to full i think what it really tells you is what the spread for the different airlines was on their typical amount of business travel alaska airlines was much more leisure yeah well and i kind of expected that with alaska but i mean you know so american and maybe maybe they'll adjust these numbers but they they posted a 23 percent uh drop from their may 2019 numbers I, I, do i really think american's going to be at you know 78 77 percent of their capacity in may man i don't think so how else are they going to pay off that 10 billion dollar loan against uh the loyalty program well the market's good you just refinance I mean, th- that basically is the American ap- approach, so. <laughs> right. Yeah, just refine it. Somebody else will give you a better rate. I mean, not that it was a great rate, like, like 6% or something like yeah. that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that great corporate debt rate, but, um, but yeah, I mean, just, I don't know. I, I have a hard time wrapping my arms around, um, you know, that they're going to fly 80% of their schedule and it's like setting aside pricing and all that, but that they're going to fill that many seats in yeah. May. And well, one thing I'll say is May schedules definitely aren't final yet. Sure. Um, but there is a big push right now towards sort of riding the vaccine wave and saying, you know, if everybody's like, didn't Biden say that every state should be able to open vaccines to everyone by May 1st or something like that? Yeah. And some states have gotten in there early. You know, I do a bunch of travel to Vegas for work and, and they said they're going to open vaccines up to every Nevadan by April 15th. Um, and maybe that will change. Things. Yeah. I just Arizona I opened it up today. I mean, oh, did they really? Yeah, I think as uh, sometime this week, it's going to officially be open, but it's it's happening. So it's hard to believe in some ways. I think part of that is just the sort of hangover of how long have we been going through this. Yeah. But, uh, you know what I'll add is part of it is also very dependent on market basis, right? I've traveled a bit over the last six months, but I can tell you, while flights in and out of Newark are that full, when I've flown through Texas, flights going to Texas are packed. Yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, depending on how, you know, locked down the states were, there's still rollover fallout from that that's still going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was unpleasantly surprised how full Philadelphia was in the uh, express terminal uh, F or whatever, um, flying through on American the other day on a work trip. So I'm, I'm, I am genuinely surprised at how hard it is to get to the East Coast from, from here from Portland. Um, Either I mean, there's nothing nonstop right now, really. I think the DCA flight uh, is running like every other day. But other than that, like it's pretty difficult. Well, this is actually one of the topics I had listed, and um, I didn't have an article attached to it, so I forgot to include it in the list that I sent you guys. But um, you know, I, I do wonder. Uh, it, it's very clear to me when I look at the schedules that they're they're geared towards what works for leisure folks, and some of the routes that I fly frequently. They started operating again. So, like for example, nonstop Vegas flights were off the books for a bit, and they're back on. But they're you know they're back on for a schedule that really doesn't work for a business traveler. Like the first departure for there's only two a day, and I think the first departure is like ten forty five in the morning, which essentially just blows the whole day in in Vegas. Um, mm-hmm. So, like as you, as you said, Stephen, like hard to get from the West Coast to the East Coast. You know, I mean, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty hard for me to fly efficiently with the schedules that are out there, and I. 
you know, my gut tells me it's going to be a while before business travelers are going to have efficient schedules for them to get places for meetings. We talked about this. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago on an episode. I drove to New Jersey because I couldn't get a decent time flight. Right. I mean, I absolutely agree that the business travel schedule um, in many markets sucks right now. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a challenge, right, for companies that are eventually going to go back. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Maybe by the summer, some companies are going to have their traveling schedules back or asking people to travel again. And I think it's going to be a challenge if the airline schedules are the same as they are right now. Do we really think we're going to go back in mass given how efficiently people have been able to work remotely over the last year? In my industry, people are going to be back in the office. No question. Me too. There's certainly going to be industries where it's not, but I mean, yeah, I think there are, I think there are a lot of industries that, that are going to go back to the old path. Maybe there'll be a few less trips, but I, I think you're going to see some industries come back almost as normal. I, I believe that we'll go back, but I think we'll see a 20, 30% reduction. And that's a huge gap from where we were. I'm totally fine if the Apple employees and the IBM employees and the Intel employees and the Nike employees aren't on my flights anymore. I'm fine. <laughs> you just want more upgrades. <laughs> That's exactly it. Well, well heck, I mean, that was subtle, all, Stephen. Well played. <laughs> we all come from a time period where I can remember having discussions back on Flyer Talk in the days where there were years as an executive platinum where I would miss one upgrade out of 80, 90, 100 flights. You know, and, and those days obviously have disappeared. So, um, you know, like Stephen, I wouldn't mind if we went back to that that time period. I, you know, I went, I sometimes went six, seven, eight months without missing an upgrade. Don't let him fool you. Neither would Foz. Foz wouldn't mind it at all. <laughs> I'm not saying otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but I do wonder, you know, so it, it, Foz, to your point, so let's say there's 20 or 30% trimmed out of the schedule for, for business travelers or you know, folks who aren't traveling for business any longer, or they're taking less frequent trips. Um, you know, at some point you have this like chicken and egg thing of, um, you know, I will, if they don't optimize the schedules for business, I will fly less because it'll take me longer to get places. So just by, by virtue of, I want a certain number of days at home in between trips. If it takes me an extra, like if I lose a day traveling because of crappy flight times, I'm, I'm not going to all of a sudden decide I want to be away from home an extra 22 days a year because their schedules aren't efficient. Right. And I mean, the bigger, you know, the thing that I ponder and, you know, we're completely going off the rails now. Ooh, ponder. Ooh. Is what does this mean for the loyalty programs? Right? The loyalty programs over the last five years have really pivoted to high revenue and getting the people who are spending. But if you're seeing a drop in your high end packs, do you have to retool the programs? Well, I mean, especially until fares go up again, obviously. I mean, like, I think it's sort of laughable that the airlines have elite qualifying dollar thresholds right now because I, I couldn't buy tickets expensive enough to hit them. Oh, look at Newark, San Francisco. <laughs> no, thanks. That's all you. <laughs> all you. But th- those, there's days when those seats are two grand a piece. Wow. And I, I was actually surprised to see that Boston, San Francisco on a 7, 3, 8, or 9 is, you know, completely packed pretty much every day. Full. But there's not a lot of I mean, there's there's not a lot of flights on that route. I looked at um I I won't say that route specifically, but I'll use a route that I used to fly regularly, right. Dulles Denver. And when I first started flying that route, um you know, and I, my math might not be correct, uh, but it'll be close. <clears throat> there were eleven flights a day between the two. There were multiple frequencies with seven six sevens and seven and triple seven. Um, I think there were two seven sixes and a seven a triple seven. There were seven fives. Like there were a lot of seats on that route. And now um like an average day is like four or five frequencies, and they're all narrow bodies. And so hmm. I mean, just like the number of of seats in between Dulles and Denver has dropped by, you know, I don't know, 60, 70%. Yeah. But I mean, part, it, part of that is just a function of where they're trying to, you know, route people through. The the connecting flows have changed significantly. Well, that and pre-merger United used to do a lot of consolidator fares, right? And they don't do as nearly as many as they used to. So that's why they were flying so many wide bodies between two clubs. Yeah. 
Right, and they and that was before pre-pandemic. All of the wide bodies were gone from Dulles, Denver, so yeah. it was down to all, all narrow bodies. There weren't even any more 757s on the route, so the, the 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 capacity had already been trimmed significantly. And so now you took planes that had half the number of seats, and then you cut half of those routes. And there's still some, you know, obviously reasonable level of travel that has to happen between those two hubs, and so it just fills up. Yeah, and, and to back to Foz's question though, what program? What a program is going to do, right? I mean, Ed, you primarily fly United and American, right? Well, and here's here's the here's the bomb dropper. I applied for the Delta Reserve Amex. I was approved uh, just a couple days ago. I haven't written about it for the blog yet. But I mean, until they stop blocking middle seats, if I started flying now, nobody can get me to Vegas in a timely manner. Period. So I'm going to either have to connect on someone or lose most of the day. And if I can have a seat empty beside me, I may be a Delta guy because uh, you know the value of the elite programs holds a lot less sway for me right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just wondering. I mean, I'm wondering if like Alaska is the one that's doing it right. Like no, you know, no qualifying dollars, right? There's no spend requirement, really. Hopefully that stays. It's still mileage based, um, and their fares right now are dirt cheap. I mean, they're like advertising, you know, thirty-one dollar fares or seventy-five dollar fares up and down the West Coast. Um, and so, if you're wondering why they're able to fill eighty percent of the seats that they did two years ago, exactly. <laughs> and everybody's going to Phoenix, right? They're trying to get out of the rain. So they're, yeah. Everybody's going to I mean, Phoenix, so, <laughs> one of the interesting things is, you know, we talk a lot about the recovery and what it means and, you know, passenger numbers, but a huge part of what it means to have a recovered industry is also the dollars. And those are definitely not tracking as close as the, uh, the passenger numbers are. The passengers will come first and then the dollars. That's how it always happens. And if the passengers come back quickly enough and more quickly than the airlines can get planes out of the desert and pilots and flight attendants off of furlough and recertified and all those things, uh, there will potentially be some spikes in fares. But I think there's, I think there's potential for a sort of, a super spike in fares coming into this summer as you know as the pent up demand releases and then things settling down a little bit again. Yeah, I think there's definitely the potential for a spike. A lot of that's going to come down to what they decide to do with the planes they have parked. I mean, they can certainly drive fares a bit if they keep planes on the ground and don't and don't ramp back up. Um, I would argue that I don't. I think if you if you if you put all the planes back on the runways, I I don't think they can fill that many no. um, at, at a premium uh, anytime soon. Definitely not. I mean, I, you know, domestically, that's all great. I'm curious to see what happens internationally, really, because at the end of the day, that's the high register for the airlines. Yeah. And that's yeah. where the big three U.S. carriers and many of the international carriers are way more exposed, yeah. right? That's why you see Alaska is able to say it can get its capacity back up, Spirit and Frontier, and those guys are actually going to be above 2019 numbers later this year in terms of capacity. But they don't fly long haul. They don't fly intercontinental, really. Yeah, and this was actually one of the article, one of the topics I want to cover uh, tonight. You know, and, and selfishly, I'm going to focus on Dulles, my home airport, for a second. I think you know, when we looked at United's network. My my personal opinion was that a lot of the flights that were out of Dulles were were things that serve connecting flow. Uh, I don't think there was enough O and D originating departing traffic to uh, to cover all of these routes. And so some of the routes that there was a huge cut of. Uh, of international flights out of uh, Dulles uh, on United. And so uh, just a quick list of destinations. Um, Amsterdam, Dublin, Edinburgh, Geneva, Lisbon, Beijing, Tokyo. You know, I mean, 
look, I mean, those are all places that I know people want to go to, but, um, but what are the chances that, uh, I, I, some of these flights, you know, Geneva can't go to half of them. So there's that. You're right. But even when you can, like, I think those flights were probably not super performers for United before. They probably did okay on them, but I mean, like, they need some sort of flow to those cities, but they certainly aren't, they probably aren't going to need wide body flow to a lot of these places from Dulles specifically anytime soon. So I just don't know what my airport looks like in two yeah. years. Well, Geneva was always driven by UN. Fair. Fair. Good point. Um, what about something like, uh, you know, Edinburgh or Amsterdam? Edinburgh? You mean Edinburgh? How many different ways are you going to say the name of <laughs> the lovely town in Scotland? This is fun. Well, I mean, Edinburgh was a 7-5, right? Is it really that much of a loss? No, it's not that. It's more like, what? Like, do they operate that flight anytime again in the near future? No. No. Uh, right, that's what I, I think. Maybe right. summer 2022 if you're lucky, probably 2023. Yeah, it was, and it'll be seasonal. Yeah, it was, summer, it was always summer only. And it was always just for vacationers. Sure, but I don't. I mean, I don't think that route comes back even summer only for a while. It all comes back down to de- demand and how things play out, right? That's there's so many unknowns. Mm-hmm. If if the UK opens up, right, truly opens up, and you know things are moving forward, then the demand could be there. Yeah, there's definitely. I think you know we talked about pent up demand and we talked about Cancun at the beginning of the show. People want to get out and go somewhere, and I think sure. people in a lot of ways don't care where it is as long as it's somewhere. So, um, if it, and it may be, you know, I think the UK is a good example. If their vaccine rollout program continues to progress the way it is and they start getting the second shots into people, I could see that being one of the first countries that is willing to allow Americans in and that we're willing to allow that level of reciprocity to. But there's, you know, there's a bigger thing to think about, right? It's fine, great the comp- country opens, but you also have to assume that all the things people want to go do are also open. The festivals and stuff. That yeah. normally happen. Like, there's a lot of things that need to play out for things to go back to normal. Well, sure. And if you think about, and I, I, I don't disagree with what you said about, say, the UK specifically, and, and maybe a seasonal route. But considering that they still have, call it probably half a dozen uh, European flights out of Dulles. So you've got uh, London, Paris, uh, Frankfurt, Munich, um, Brussels is still operating, Zurich. So we've got half a dozen places, you know, I just, you know, when do the other four or five really, like, when's the need as opposed to, you know, again, as you say, people want to go somewhere, but are there enough people willing to pay enough of a price to go enough somewheres to bring a lot of these flights back? I mean, they've already got a decent amount of flights for what today's levels are. You basically have the pre-merger European network at this point. Yeah. With the exception of Geneva. I don't, I don't see, I mean, maybe, maybe United makes a move or some of some of the other islands make a move and they say, look, we're not going to. You know, Houston's not going to be our nonstop market to Europe. Or maybe they're going to say the same thing about Dulles and they're going to push everything through Newark. Unlikely, because I don't, I think there's enough O&D out of, out of, for United to be happy. But I'm just wondering, like, maybe Houston, they say, okay, well, we're going to fly Frankfurt and maybe Amsterdam if we can get the corporate contracts, but nothing else. And they push all that traffic through Dulles. Maybe. But, I mean, aside from, what, other than London, what other European? Well, that's parts? really it. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think they're going to drop London from Houston. No, I wouldn't think so. And Frankfurt and Munich, if if Lufthansa is still a strong partner, I mean, those make sense. And Dulles, the, it, and Dulles is a pre-merger, right? All these all, and all the most of the routes you're talking about were all seasonal. Like yeah, and, and you still have to connect, you know, the entire southeast to Europe somewhere. You do. I just I, I felt like, and look, I benefited from it. I felt like pre-COVID, um, United was. Uh, over-indexed on total destinations. I mean, I could, you know, I could always find four premium award seats somewhere in Europe from Dulles um, pretty much 12 months a year um, between all the different destinations they had. It always felt like there was more capacity chasing, not enough passengers. 
I mean, not to poop on your airport is a reason. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And there we have it. 37 minutes into the show, and Steven's the first one to trash my home airport. <laughs> I mean, I've flown through Dulles plenty. It was a great connection out of out of Montreal. But, I mean, if it's, the, if it's my first choice of where I'm going to fly through to get to Europe, I'll pick somewhere else. <laughs> I would, because I, you know, I never know if Annie Ann's is going to be open for dinner. <laughs> hey, there's a five guys. <laughs> Any other terminal? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I understand it's not as, as as pretty as say the new Newark is, and we don't have you know all of those wonderful dining options that Foss loves so much at, uh, at the OTG. <laughs> but um, but I mean, again, I I don't think the majority of people are choosing their connection point because of the quality of the connecting airport. I understand that we do things like that, but I, I, I think, you know, I think a lot of folks are either going to choose it based on pricing um, or overall schedule. Well, um, I think that's the, I think the overall schedule is the piece in like looking at schedules from, from me, right. Coming from the West coast, they were never great, right. It was always better for me or easier for me to go through Chicago yeah. um, or maybe Newark, depending on, that's, how I wanted to connect. That's by design, right? Like, yeah. Dallas is really for South Central U.S. and the Southeast yeah. U.S. Yeah. And really, you know, they wanted to, at least for United, they want to minimize people connecting in Newark because they have a fair bit of O&D traffic that can fill the seat, so they were trying yeah. to push a lot of that to Dallas. And and honestly, in some ways, South Central and Southeast are where the demand is strongest right now. I mean, you said it, you passed through Texas and it was insane, yeah. right? Like, those are the markets that are going to want to connect to Europe, potentially. So, I don't know, maybe you see Dallas come back faster than you're expecting just because that's where the connections are. Now, they may, United may siphon off some of that connecting flow via Newark a little longer than not because it needs to still support the broader uh, local traffic market and there's not quite as big a rebound in New York yet. But it's, uh, I, I could see if, if you really are just looking at how the market recovers and where those connections were, you could see a stronger rebound at Dallas to start. Yeah, I guess it depends on where they pick because, again, I think it goes back to that belief that United's always been a connecting hub, that it's not really about uh, O&D for, for that travel. It's, as you guys said, it, it's a it's a way to uh, relocate demand from Newark um, somewhere on the East Coast to allow people to connect. It's, you know, it's uh, it's United's version of American's Charlotte hub, if you will. Philly. So Dulles over Charlotte. I mean, there is O&D, definitely, but I, I think it's yeah. not nearly as much as some of the other airports. Correct. Yeah, I would say I would say absolutely. Like, there's certainly government contract O and D. I get it. There's you know there's there's the contractors, there's the lobbyists, but the Newark market should be much more uh, uh, underpinned by corporate contracts than Dulles. Yeah. I don't know that for certain, but I mean the notional things I've heard about like what it takes to qualify for global services at Newark versus Dulles, you know those sorts of things, and some of the corporate contracts I have heard about. It seems like the there's a lot more supporting the the Newark market than the Dulles market. I would agree with that. So before we leave my home airport, which Stephen was so nice enough to poop on, um, I want to I want to pick one more thing. I just think it's interesting that American, in spinning up new service, has finally decided to start serving Dulles again in some way, shape, or form. But they're somehow choosing not to do it from a hub. Um, and this is you know this is the reason why I went away. Stephen said you said I was an American flyer. I was an executive platinum uh, flyer for ten years, and I gave it up because American slowly stopped flying from most of their hubs to Dulles. Uh, they used to fly from uh, Chicago, uh, Dallas, L.A., Miami, and back when they had a mini hub in San Juan, they flew San Juan Dulles. And obviously, they don't fly San Juan anymore. They don't fly Miami. They don't fly Chicago. Um, they've got a daily L.A., which I don't even know if it's running right now. And they've got Dallas Fort Worth, but they're spinning up Austin to Dulles. Which when I does just, that start? 
Um, summertime? Do they fly? Mm. That's the Austin, my focus city. Mm-hmm. But do they? Yeah. Do they fly national to Austin? No. They they don't. Do they? Do they? Maybe they do. They would have to. Capital connector. I don't well, not just that, but Austin's a. I mean, Austin's a, a good market for them generally. I'd be surprised yeah. if they didn't fly it. As we all uh, like hammer away on our browsers yeah. to look up DCA Austin. But, you know, having, like, I've had this conversation with folks at American before, and their comment to me has always been, look, when we finish filling out, I'm paraphrasing, but not when, when we finish filling out, uh, National, we'll absolutely go overflow at Dulles. But they have no, <laughs> no designs to really spin the airport up. So I guess, like, okay, so you're, you're focusing on Austin, and you don't pick to fly to your hub, and I, I don't see nonstops, I see one stop. So, like, they're choosing not to fly a nonstop Austin National, and they're gonna fly Austin Dulles? That's just weird to me. That's got, so a um, Southwest does fly DC to National to Austin, so they they hold that market um, as it were. Uh, the I would bet it's tied entirely to corporate contracts and people that are going out to the the defense contractors or whoever or the tech corridor. I don't know what the hell you guys call it in DC area, but you know, <laughs> Dallas Tollway. Yeah, yeah. Dallas Tollway, the Silver Line. <laughs> soon, soon. When we, we're building it, we're building it. <laughs> right, it's actually going to. I think they started building it after O'Hare started constructing or fixing the uh, rental car butt shuttle train, and they're going to open it before. So, did they? Well, the real question is: Did they start building the Silver Line to Dallas before or after this podcast started? So. You're mad that we're talking too long. No, I don't mean the length of the episode. I mean like the seven oh, years in general. <laughs> I think I'd go with the podcast, but I'm not sure. I think the podcast, I think the podcast is older, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I think, yeah. I'm going to have to go back and look that up later. <laughs> um, like, are we talking about actual construction start or when the project was approved? Oh, the project was approved when I moved down here. That was that was that was twenty five years ago. No, no, we're talking about actual construction. Yeah, no, I when I moved down here, I remember them telling me, "Oh, it's going to be great. There's going to be a train to the airport." <laughs> that oh, was all lived out by a train station. <laughs> that was that was ninety seven, by the way. And I remember looking at a condo back then that they said was going to be right by the the metro stop um, that was going to that was going to be put there. And um, that metro stop is scheduled to open this year. And that was 97, so that's only 24 years. Well, the original 1968 Metro Rail plan included an eventual extension to Dallas Airport. <laughs> and they and they have delivered. Yes, ish. Uh, formal <laughs> approval in 2004, construction in 2005-ish, maybe? All right, so, so, the, so the extension is maybe. older than, than the show. No, I'm sorry. Phase 2 contract was awarded in 2013. Sorry. That makes more sense. So it's right around the same time as when the show yeah. started. Yeah. <laughs> So I can give you three companies just looking at Google Maps. Cisco, Lockheed Martin, and what I saw? Amazon Web Services are all right by Dulles. And there are a lot of companies right by Dulles. Do you think those companies have big presence in Austin as well? They, they do. Yeah, I okay. know I know for a fact Cisco, Cisco does. Okay. Um, yeah, and Amazon does. Could be it. I don't know. I mean, that's it's weird to me still, even with even with the corp- – maybe unless there's a corporate contract. It would be surprising to me if those companies said fly American. Yeah. Because yeah. United was already flying that route. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also remember that DC slots are way more limited. Yeah, they sure are. It's just weird. It's, you know, and again, I'm I'll get off the soapbox after this, but it's been one of those things where you know, since they got rid of Dulles, Chicago, you can't really live out my way and fly to the Midwest on American because the way the schedules all go, you've got to go down to Charlotte, and the connecting times make it. So if I have to go to Fort Wayne or Peoria or any of those places, I just can't do it on American because I lose the whole day. Um, you know, I've got to backtrack down to Charlotte, connect, and make my way somewhere in the Midwest, which is the schedules just aren't timed for it. So um, it's just weird. Delta you get for going to Peoria. Look, some 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 of us go to Peoria. 
Delta, Delta here you come, right? I mean, I, right. Delta's, Delta's got Detroit and Minneapolis for me, so that, that'll be uh, that'll be starting soon. As somebody shoves a vaccine in my arm. You'll um, get, uh, you'll get a, a good a good walk in at Detroit too. You know, like a nice five mile hike down that, that terminal. That's okay. I'm a lifelong Pistons fan, so I, I'll uh, I'll enjoy seeing the Pistons gear hanging from the rafters. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the only one enjoying the Pistons gear hanging from the rafters. <laughs> um. So I think the last thing on my list, and I know uh, Foz has what he calls commentary, but I'll call a rant. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, I guess I, sh- I really feel like I should have known this, but so we'll include this link in the show notes. But there was a story uh, a couple weeks ago about a Frontier flight where the de-icing didn't really happen, and there was a significant buildup on the wings of a Frontier plane, um, as described by some as a foot of ice and snow, which seems like a bit of an exaggeration to me, though I, I guess it's... Yeah, if you look at the picture, it's hard to tell, but it's pretty thick. Yeah. Um, I guess I just... Uh, like, look, don't get me wrong, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to hit this softball over the fence. Like, I understand that the plane doesn't have rear view mirrors. I get it. But it just... It didn't really sink into me that there's really nobody... Um, sort of auditing the edge of the wing, if you will, after de-icing to make sure it's actually clear. This is the same reason that the ground crew shows the pin when they pull it from the bottom of the plane. So yeah. That's that guy under the nose gear holding the big thing with the flappy. Yeah, explain that, more, explain that more detail for people who aren't nerds like you. So, I mean, there's there's a there's some safety security equipment, right? And that pin is basically he's showing, hey, I've, I've verified that this is out and you can retract the gear. It, it prevents the nose gear from retracting. So when you're on the ground, you don't want it to accidentally collapse. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That would be bad, right? Yeah. So he's so showing that to the he's showing that to the pilot to say you're not going to get up in the air and have to turn right back around. Right. To come do an emergency landing. So it's a yeah, it's a safety thing, right? It's it's accountability, um, and I think the the icing crew uh, failed badly. Yeah, and, and so you take that thing with the pin as an example, and for you know, for like the seven of my listeners that are still listening, um, that now understand <laughs> what what the pin is for. Um, I you know, I guess I wonder, you know, it does does an episode like this lead towards discussion about hey, there needs to be some sort of a clean view of the of the wing before you're released from the icing. That's it's a good question. Um, I mean, it's certainly I mean, achievable I by a flight attendant. It's just I'm not saying it's a necessary step, but it's certainly not a hard step to accomplish. Yes and no. I mean, there there is the challenge of like getting someone, getting a pilot in the midst of everything else on the checklist to get up and walk out of the flight deck to go check that. Um, well, no, that's what I'm saying. What if you had a flight attendant? What if a flight attendant's responsibility is part of the you know you're, you're briefing the you're briefing the emergency exit rows, which is generally yeah. where the wings are anyway. It's like all right, well, you know, part of part of being at the exit rows. I mean, obviously that's not the right timing for every airport because they de-ice in different places. But would it be would it be a, a, a reasonable use of the flight attendant's time to lean over and look out the window and see if they see ice on the wings? I mean, you know, that was the what the Colgan Air crash in uh. Um, in Buffalo, a number of years ago, was was because of ice in the wings. But I mean, the question, the one wild card I would say is, right? Will every flight attendant be able to do that effectively and make? Because the pilots will understand how much will impact the operation. Yeah. Does it does it look like you could go make angels on the wing or not? Might not be a sufficient <laughs> uh, metric. I think is what Foz is getting at. Basically. Um, yeah, well, and I guess for, for for folks who are listening who aren't aware, like, what's what's a good idea of a clean wing? Like, how much debris can be on that leading edge before? Pretty much none. Right. So, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I like when you when they said there was a foot, I'm like, come on. Like, I've never seen. I I don't know that I've ever backed away from a gate without much snow in the wings. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stephen, who are you thinking about your uh, departure in Vilnius? Yes. <laughs> Is it bad that I can pick which ridiculous story Stephen wants to tell? That's how you know we've been doing this almost ten years. 
I, I mean, it was to the point that my friend and I that were sitting next to that was sitting next to me, we we both kind of looked at each other like uh, they didn't de-ice us, and there's ice on the wing. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, that was fun. Uh, and I got some vaguely good news for you on your Peoria trips. If things go to plan and uh, the DOT issues the small city grant that uh, the University of Illinois Champaign Airport is requesting, I think it's eight hundred thousand dollars. Then uh, eight hundred fifty. Uh, that'll go into Whoa. part of a like one point two million dollar grant program that they're trying to use to bribe American Airlines to fly nonstop to DCA. And from there, it's a quick drive over to Peoria. So that might save you. <laughs> But then he it's has possible. To drive to DCA. That's true. But it's a nonstop flight. Check, please. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I, I, the reason why I don't necessarily, I mean, it, that, that flight might happen with that subsidy, but the reason why no. I didn't figure a Peoria flight would ever happen is, as far as I know, Caterpillar, which is the major business down there, they're moving their headquarters to Chicago. So, um, most of what was going to Peoria probably isn't going to be going to and from Peoria anymore. Oops. <laughs> um, if it makes you, the other one that's trying to do it is, uh, Springfield, Missouri. One is similarly trying to bribe American to use one of its DC slots for service with a similar dollar figure. Yeah. Also seems very unlikely to me. A lot of things seem unlikely now, but yeah, gosh, I mean, I, I can't wait to see what the next six months bring. I'm insanely interested to see what routes come back. And, and quite frankly, I, you know, again, cause I'm a business traveler by, by, by nature, what these business travel schedules and prices are going to look like. I'm, I'm still, still not convinced I have any real clue what that, what that's going to look like. Yeah. Not that it's a surprise to anyone on the show with me that I have no clue. Um, I don't know if you want to talk more about the icing, but uh, I was just going to say I I really think it's it's you know, a supervisor for these de icing crews. You know, depending on where you're at, which which city you're in, a lot of these de icing operations take place at a pad, that's right? Just for de icing, and typically there are supervisors out there. And to me, it seems like it would make sense that hey, the supervisor comes by to each plane and says, yeah, you're good to go, checks off one. And there's there's an accountability there for that. Well, and you think in a place, because that incident happened in Nashville, if I recall correctly, and someone in, in a place like Nashville, you would have even more supervision because they don't do it that often. Yeah. Right. Except they don't do it that often, so they don't staff enough for it. And I, I realize that, but that, that's where you need more scrutiny of where something like Minneapolis, yeah. right? Those guys know how to do it on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Denver has, Denver has you know, snow boilers out on the runway. They, they've got the whole de-icing and snow removal thing down pretty well. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's to me, it's just like a it's a question of making sure people are trained and and you know, checked up on and made accountable for, for what they're doing. I would have. I just would have thought that would have that those those procedures were already naturally. in place. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, that's the thing. It's like okay, they're they're held accountable, but what does that mean when the plane crashes? Yeah. That's that's what I was gonna say. Right. These guys. I believe the two people involved in this incident were quote unquote held accountable, but had there been an incident, what does that really? Mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, at the risk of uh, the risk of saying it prematurely, I'm I'm going to do my quick Stephen Seagraves imitation and say, "Well, I think that's a show, guys." <laughs> well, wait, we got to get Foz's rant. Oh darn it, I forgot. Oh, Foz, we're out of time. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've got some bonus content for folks as well. So so um so the dots lines uh, Patreon folks, which apparently I am one of, um, will want to stick around uh, for that. But um but first, and by the way, uh, Stephen, it's commentary, not rant. <laughs> and actually, it's commentary. I don't have a rant. But <laughs> he's getting awfully worked up for a guy that's not ranting. Nobody is hitting the subscribe button. Just want you to know that. <laughs> that people are hitting unsubscribe, if anything. Uh, no, I, over the last few months, you know, as renting cars, I've noticed something very peculiar. Pe- previous renters are personalizing these cars. Like I had one a few weeks ago where someone just put bumper etchings on the car and Hertz didn't do anything about it. 
like when I got it, it had bumper etchings out in the present style. I had another one which had custom tint in it. Custom tint? Custom tint. <laughs> I'm like, literally, I get into this car, I'm like, is this someone's car? <laughs> it was like a little, like, air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror? <laughs> uh, there could have been. There was, was, a, was, was this a warm weather city? It I did mean, have, it, cars can move around. It but. did have Florida plates. Um, mm. There was another car with someone's apartment complex sticker in it. <laughs> what? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> And he's just like, and these were from real companies, right? Yes. Not like, yep. not like fly you know. by night, shady. Nope, nope. One of the big three. One of the big three. <laughs> yeah. And and, uh, and in some of the cities, they just have, don't have cars. Yes, I've seen that. I've seen and heard that from a number. I've had this question come up a number of times in recent podcast episodes with folks who can't find rental cars. Like I've had a couple times. I'll go out there. There's not a single car out there. Where are the cars? I in people's apartment parking lots. Did you hear? Well, and are they doing like long-term rentals? Is that one of the ways that they're subsidizing the fleet right now? Like renting a car out to someone for a month or two? That's possible. I, I mean, I partially, I partially believe that with all the people buying cars over the last year, they've probably sold a number of cars to liquidate some of their assets because they don't. And then them. bought them back. Well, the, the <laughs> <laughs> hey, can we get that Ford Focus back this week? We're going to need it. <laughs> well, why would you at least go through the effort of taking the stuff off? That's the thing that surprises me. Well, maybe they're just borrowing it for the week. <laughs> they're wet leasing the, the rental car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I was gonna say. It's like it's like a lease. Like they're like they're leasing the cars out. They got a whole new program. You haven't even heard about it. It's, it's so uh, so hip. <laughs> they're doing they're doing they're doing insurance replacement vehicles and letting people hold on to cars. And then they just they just call them when they need it back for a weekend. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> they're helping. Look, they're helping out the environment. Hey, absolutely. It was just a very interesting observation. And I just know if anyone else had heard or experienced that, but I'm like, at least three cars I could think of where I had, it was clearly personally marked. That's bizarre. I don't think I've ever seen an apartment sticker in a rental car. That, 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 that and the bumper sticker were really the two, but the custom tinting was really confusing as well. Yeah, I mean, if you told me it had like Arizona or Vegas plates, I mean, like window tint is sort of like, um, you know, bottled water and sunscreen in Arizona and Las Vegas, but, but Florida, uh, I don't know. But this was beyond the normal tint. Like, in this case, did they have like someone like their boyfriend or girlfriend's name no. above the windshield, <laughs> at the top of the windshield too? Might have. Um, no, well, mud, mud flaps with like the silver woman with the legs crossed. <laughs> no, it, it, I'll get uh, two Florida cars right next to each other. Um, both Infinity QX50s, very different tinting. One was the standard. One was clearly like had this super dark and uh, at the top of the windshield and the back windows were really you could barely see through them. Literally, because every once in a while I've gotten into a car, which is clearly someone's personal car parked in the aisle where it shouldn't be. But I'm like, I got in. I'm like, is this someone's car? And I'm like, there's a key here. No, no, wait, 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 stop. I want to go get back. A you yeah, I want to go back to every now and then you just accidentally get into someone's personal car in the rental car. <laughs> Are the keys in it? Like, what's going on? No, because that that's the thing that tells me that it's not really a rental car because there's no key in it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I can't. I can't imagine. I'm just like getting in, man. man. This guy needs to lay off the patchouli. <laughs> it, it oh generally is the scent that gives it away first. That it is not a rental. Oh, check, please. <laughs> Do you guys want to tease the bonus content uh, before we uh, before we close stuff out? Sure, we're gonna we're gonna talk about meth being a hell of a drug, and. Uh, <laughs> Why don't we just stop there? <laughs> wow, look at all the people clamoring for the Patreon. <laughs> and uh, some Hong Kong cargo limits. Seth wrote about. Yeah, and I, I don't think I can. I don't think I can do it justice to do it a second time. So, Stephen, I think you got to close the show. Oh well, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at dots lines more dots more lines dot com. Uh, thanks for listening. Happy travels. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, Ed. <laughs> I think. Thanks, th- <laughs> thanks, guys, for being on.